It's time for episode 87 of the Clockwise Podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, May 13th, 2015. Clockwise, four people, four technology topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise, a podcast that reminds you it's time for me to get a new fence because the elephant sat on it. Remember that joke? I'm Jason Snell, and across the internet for me is Dan Moran. Hi, Dan. You know, they're not all going to be winners, Jason. Of course, this is Clockwise. We talk for 30 minutes about four technology topics with two wonderful guests. To my left, it is a developer of PCALC and Drag Thing, and uh, the, a gentleman who hosted me at his at his place when I was visiting Glasgow. It's James Thompson. Hi, James. Hi, Jason. A pleasure to speak to you again. I still have the sign. Uh, welcome back. Well, fully 50% of the people on this podcast have hosted Jason and at some point at their home. <laughs> but one of those who hasn't is our other guest, Macworld editor, Susie Oaks. Hi, Susie. Hi, how's it going? Jason's welcome well. at my house anytime. <laughs> there you We're, go. You we live in the a... same region, so it's a little easier. But, you know, you, sometimes <laughs> yeah. you end up uh, like the Chris, your place. Uh, Brian Chen, our friend who writes for the New York Times, his oven broke. Moment of silence for Brian's oven. Uh, and he wrote about it in the New York Times. He got really bad customer service when he complained about it. And his point was you can test a product and evaluate it and find out that uh, it's good. But that doesn't talk about any of the other issues like what happens if it breaks and is the company behind it uh, terrible or are they good? Um, and, and that led me to wonder – how we all use product reviews because you know a lot of us have written product reviews some of us james have had our product reviewed <laughs> by people and i'm just curious uh how do you use let's just put a computer hardware and software aside but how do you use product reviews in your lives do you and and uh and how do you go about that what's your what's your uh i'm just curious how do we all use product reviews james well i i definitely use them but i it really depends on what i'm buying uh, if it's something expensive and long-lasting like a TV where the market will change completely between buying the last one and buying the new one, I'll likely look for professional reviews first. You know, sort of find a roundup of the current brands, models, select a number of likely candidates and then look them up somewhere else, probably Amazon, and see what actual customers think of them. I mean, the two sources of review rarely match up perfectly. So it's a question of trying to find out exactly where the truth lies. Um, One thing I always look for is a significant number of people saying, well, this was really good, but it failed six months later, Mm. which is the kind of thing that you don't get in uh, professional reviews. Um, Also, I look at reviews that have got the lowest rating as well as the highest rating. Because so usually the single one-star review is by a crazy person, and they are <laughs> obvious. Um, but occasionally somebody will say something interesting there, like, yeah, put it, we did put aside technology, but something like, you know, doesn't work with the Mac. Mm. Um, and But if it's something cheap, like a pair of headphones, I'm particularly guilty of just going onto Amazon, typing the description and sorting by popularity and looking at the first couple of things and picking the one with the highest number of positive reviews. Yeah, it's hard to go wrong there. I mean, I think James, right, the, the Venn diagram is kind of what you go for. And I, I do the same thing where I look at multiple reviews of something and be like, all right, these guys said this was good. These guys said this was okay. You know, are there any, if I'm looking at like three different products, 
you know, I might check all those like reviews in a couple different places and see if there's any overlap and like people agreeing on disparate sites like, oh, this is the thing to get. Um, I have gotten a lot lazier since the advent of, say, like the wire cutter and the sweet home, um, which is to say I generally look at their site, see what they recommend, check, you know, a couple like maybe some Amazon reviews and what have you and then decide, well, it seems pretty good. But you're right that there is a gap there in that we don't really get the longevity of, of reviews. And, and to a certain extent, there's a societal thing there where it's society for certain things is so replaceable it's like you buy some things and it dies in six months and it's like well it's not even worth repairing i'll just have to go buy a new one which is sad um the other thing that i think about is um car buying i bought a car a few years ago and that i definitely spent some time you know a lot of time researching obviously you can't really go to amazon and get product reviews for your car uh not yet anyways but consumer reports i've you know i sort of grew up with that we got that regularly in my house and my parents, I feel like, consulted it pretty religiously whenever they were buying, especially, especially things like appliances um, or cars, you know, big purchases. And I find it, you know, they're not bad for car reviews. Their technology reviews are often kind of wacky. Um, but, you know, again, between those and sort of getting like word of mouth from people I know on like, oh, yes, I bought this thing and I heard it was really good. Or Twitter and social media are really great for that these days because you can say, did anybody have a good or bad experience with this product or this company? And you will get people who will tell you. Um, it does tend to be towards the outliers, right? It's people who really either had really great experiences or really terrible experiences. Um, and I think that's the point Brian makes in his article is, you know, a lot of people will complain very loudly about things that have bad experiences but very few people tell you you know what is it when they've had a really great customer experience with the company so there's a lot of resources the hard part is filtering the noise and finding the actual signal there yeah i use reviews a lot um i definitely agree with dan that um i've been using um the wire cutter and sweet home a lot because they just do all the research for you they take reviews into account to come up with a short list of products in each category and then they test the heck out of them so and i we know those guys we trust them so i've gotten lazier about like some of the things that i buy from amazon if wire cutter or sweet home has researched it for me then i feel like i can just pull the trigger on a uh, category, a thing that I buy a lot online is clothes. And one of my favorite stores, ModCloth, has amazing customer reviews because the people can say what size they are, what size they bought, how it fits, and even upload their own pictures. So this really helps me get a better sense of what the clothes might look like on me versus, you know, on the model um, who might not look exactly like me. But um, so, yeah, customer reviews are super helpful to me in a lot of things I buy online. But going back to Brian Chen's problem, customer service is just really hard. Um, small town stores used to be the best at it. My mom and dad would buy appliances and furniture and cars and from people they knew, like neighbors or friends from church. And that way, you know, you should research what you're buying before you buy it. But even something that gets wonderful reviews, like there's always going to be one that breaks, you know, and you might buy the one that breaks. So it's good to buy things from companies that you trust, even if you have to pay a little bit more. Um, and you can't always go for the lowest price online because, you know, you want someone who's going to stand behind it. So I think that's a good thing to keep in mind, too. It's not just what you're buying. It's who you're buying it from. 
from. You try to use what the professionals uh, say and what your own personal needs are and see if there are any horror stories. And I, I think that's the, the way the way we, we work. When I started in this business, um, you know, it was like coming down from the mountaintop with uh, the definitive answer. And these days we have so much information that um, all the reviews are just kind of part of, the, part of the voice. But Brian does point out, I think quite rightly, I, I don't think there's an answer. I don't think there's a good answer because I think it's almost impossible to test customer service. But there it is. It's good to know that it's part of the equation and that your review isn't going to tell you about it probably. Good stuff. Uh, let's move on to the next topic. James, what do you have for us? Well, uh, to paraphrase the great Dr. Ian Malcolm, your developers were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Is it a problem that the Apple Watch already has 4,116 third-party apps already? And will their current quality tarnish the otherwise, shall we say, stainless nature of the watch? Wow, I see what you did there. Um, <laughs> nice, bravo. I think that the the preponderance of Apple Watch apps is it's really been fascinating to dive into the Apple Watch ecosystem. Um, you know, the closest we've had to something like this is the launch of the iPad back in 2010, where there were a lot of apps because people have been using iPhone apps for a while. But, you know, the Apple Watch, I think their sort of first day experience with that has been totally, you know, a tsunami comparatively. Uh, and it seems like every every new app I install, there's now an Apple Watch app. And I don't even realize half of them are on my watch until I until I go back to that home screen and like, oh, what are all these new icons? Um, in general, my experience with them haven't been like, there's been very few that I've actually been like, okay, that's something I'm really going to use frequently. Um, a lot of them I haven't really gotten a chance to, to try out extensively because they are kind of buried down there. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of watch apps right now that don't know what exactly they're doing. Um, I'm sure someone else would mention if I didn't, then Marco Armand wrote a piece about designing his overcast app for the watch and why he had to sort of go back to the drawing board and scrap everything after he'd used the watch for a while. Uh, and I think sort of what's going to be interesting is to see this second wave of apps that that crop up after people have spent a considerable amount of time using the watch and sort of figuring out what are the tasks I want to do? What's the best way to design an app for the watch? So I, I don't think it necessarily has a negative effect on the Apple Watch as a whole, but I think that the Apple Watch apps aren't really going to take off until we start seeing the the apps designed with the watch really in mind. Yeah, I would agree on that. And um, I'm also eager for the second wave. Um, one thing that I like about the Apple Watch is that having the iPhone as a gatekeeper actually helps with that because if you're choosy already about what goes on your phone and then you open that Apple Watch app on your phone and you're equally choosy about which phone apps are allowed onto your watch, having those thousands of apps that aren't worth your time and kind of clogging up the stores, it doesn't really matter to you unless you go, you know, browsing through the store looking for for specific apps. So, you know, you should just let the early adopters be your guinea pigs. And, and if, if when good apps show up, like people are going to find them and people are going to talk about them because it's so new and really useful, awesome Apple Watch apps are still kind of rare. So, so yeah, I think the the second wave will be good, and just having you know another step to go through will keep your your watch from getting cluttered up with a bunch of, of junky apps, unless you know you install a bunch. Yeah, one of the problems is that a lot of this stuff is getting automatically installed on update, which means you you you, you turn to the app screen on your watch and you're like, what is happening here? Um, and a lot of them are not good. The good thing is that the Apple uh, the, or the uh, watch apps screen is uh, not one I visit 
often and I usually visit it for a targeted pers- purpose of like I'm going to open that app right now and so it's it's less than I think it's less of a problem that a lot of these are lousy um, I, I don't think in the end it, it really impacts the uh, the the experience of using the watch I, I I think that the apps that I am using are more functional than I actually kind of expected I kind of expected glances would be like what the apps would be <laughs> so they're a little more functional but I do think it really is on Apple to very quickly move ahead and give developers access to the thing that they promised which is more full featured apps later in the year so I'm hoping that at WWDC that's what we see because I feel like we need to you know the, the platform is out there now we need to move on developers need to get some time to spend with the hardware and with perhaps a beta version of the watch OS and start uh, building apps that are, that are uh, more functional than the, the, the basic ones that we, than we have now. Um, you know, speaking as somebody who has the 4,117th yeah. app. How's the, how is the P calc for, uh, for Apple watch coming? Um, it's in review as we speak. Um, I have had good feedback about it. I, I, hmm. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a second generation app. But I, I did design it entirely um, with a watch in my hand. Um, but so I hope the answer to my question is no. Otherwise, I've just wasted the last <laughs> few months. But I do have to say that I think the apps are the thing I use least about the watch. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them aren't great because they're trying to do too much. And the constant sure. communication with the phone leads to significant load times or lags or whatever. And some of them just aren't particularly useful and feel more like gimmicks, which people will show their friends for the first week or so to demo the watch to them and never actually use again after that point. I mean, not my app, clearly. (laughs) Single-handedly worth buying a watch for. Um, But, I mean, there are some good apps out there, but finding them is just hard in, you know, a sea of digital mediocrity. Um, At this stage, I think, yeah, as you say, most of them were probably not tested on a real watch before release. So quality will improve as people actually uh, use the watches and see what it can do. Um, but I think the, the app screen on my watch has become this like just a group of tiny, hard-to-tap, mostly blue icons, <laughs> half of which I can't even recognize at the default zoom level. And I always sigh when I end up in the app launcher. Um, I think it's easily the worst part of the whole watch interface. I agree. I agree. Um, but not your app. Your app is going to be great. Yeah, of, of course. Um, I mean, I do think things will change when we get access to uh, native watch apps, which uh-huh. is supposed to be later this year. And hopefully Apple is going to continue to refine the UI of the watch itself, uh, especially, I hope, the app screen. Um, but I do have the slight worry that by that point, when everything's in place, that um, people have given up on using the watch apps completely. Uh, and to a certain extent, that, that might hurt the watch. I mean, I think Apple gave developers more than they said they would, which was initially they just said glances and notifications. But I do wonder if they should have stuck to that original plan and held back apps until the full native stuff was available. Well, we will see what they do next, hopefully, at WWDC. Thanks for the topic. Uh, we're halfway through this one, and we'd like to have a halftime sponsor. Our halftime sponsor this week on Clockwise is Dropbox for Business. Dropbox for Business lets your whole team sync and share files, just like the Dropbox that 300 million users love, but with all the space you need and admin tools to manage and protect company information. Let's say you've got people working all over, satellite offices, home offices on the road. Everyone's using different apps, different phones, different computers. Dropbox for Business lets 
lets them all work together from anywhere. So the Houston marketing team can collaborate on a presentation with sales in Chicago before sending it off to the client in Seattle, all in an instant. Everyone stays on the same page no matter what they're using. And since all those files are in one place, the IT department can easily manage and secure the company's data with powerful administrative tools that are built right into Dropbox for business. Plus, you can plug in more than 300,000 apps, everything from Microsoft Office and eDiscovery to Salesforce and DLP solutions. Um, get your free Dropbox for business trial today at dropbox.com slash clockwise. That's dropbox.com slash clockwise. Thank you to Dropbox for business for sponsoring clockwise. And now halftime's over. Dan, it's your turn. What's your topic? My topic is self-driving cars. Uh, there's been a lot about them, obviously, over the last few years. Uh, it's funny. I was Googling around trying to find an article. I swear I'd read a headline. It was like, self-driving cars are farther away than you think. And I came up with literally a mix of headlines that were both self-driving cars are farther away than you think and closer than you think. And objects in the mirror are closer than they appear, I guess. Um, so uh, there was an interesting piece by uh, Chris Ermson, who's the head of Google's self-driving car program, sort of running down the accidents that the self Google self-driving car has encountered in its time on the road. 11 accidents in 1.7 million miles, which is probably better than most of us, uh, none of which involve the self-driving car at fault. Um, and so I'm sort of curious, does this, you know, do you think this is a sort of positive report in terms of this is, hey, you know, this is this is actually practical. This might be something that we see in the near term. Do you think, well, maybe this is still far off because, you know, there's still problems to work out and things like that. Or I don't, you know, you don't want to give up control. I'm just kind of curious to know what you think about the future of self-driving cars, whether it's something that's near or far and whether it's something you're interested in. Susie? Um, I don't think this is coming super soon. And some of the articles have said, you know, it'll be ready by 2020. We're going to have cars on the road by 2020. And that's only five years off. And I don't know, like people really like their cars. People really like driving and people are creeped out by robots and things that move (laughs) autonomously. I just, I don't know. So I'm thinking of, I mean, I'm thinking of like the movie Singles and and the guy wanted to do a train in Seattle and he's like, we're going to revolutionize the commute and we're going to, we're going to beat the traffic problem and we need a super train and it's going to have good music and good coffee and people will park and ride. And the mayor's like, people love their cars. Like, no, we're not even going to do this. And that was just a train. That wasn't getting rid of cars. So I know like self-driving cars won't mean like everyone has to turn in their keys and, you know, give up their their beloved car and get a self-driving car, but it's just such a big paradigm shift and and this country doesn't always do things, you know, based on like what the most logical, like scientifically sound, you know, reasoning would be. So I think this is going to be just really hard for people to kind of wrap their brains around and I think that that's going to keep it from from being you know just just because it's ready from a technology standpoint like i don't i don't think that's going to be enough to make it happen I think uh, I think some people like their cars. I think other people don't like their cars, or they see them as merely a, a way to get from point A to point B. And I, I, you know, I've never been a really big car guy, so for me, um, cars are transportation. And if I could do something else instead of driving myself, I would probably I would probably choose to do that. So I, I do think that this is all going to come in slowly. It's going to come in with auto drive features and luxury cars, so that when you're on the freeway, um, you know, driving for five hours, that you can put it in auto drive when you're when you're just sitting there on the on the freeway with nothing else going on and it'll be in like little like corporate campuses and college campuses where there'll be little shuttles and things like that i i, I read a story about how the long 
long haul trucking industry is is uh, positioned to be dramatically changed by this because humans driving for long distances and long hours is incredibly inefficient and expensive and it's a terrible job and there there are lots of reasons to not to have the, that be more automated so um i think we'll see it in places but in terms of like everybody having a self-driving car and nobody owning their own car and it all just being some sort of weird google uber uh thing that happens where a car magically appears when you summon it it seems unlikely uh, in the near in the near future, but I do think we're going to see some of this in, in in some places, and probably five years from now is not unrealistic for the first you know the first verge of that. But yeah, it'll be twenty or thirty years before it's uh, I would say remotely common. Um, I think this is related to the AI discussion that we had last time on Clockwise. You know, could you actually ever build something that could handle all the situations better than a human can? Is that even possible? Um, the existing cars seem to be built for the easy cases first, like straight driving on a freeway, and then they struggle on sort of unknown twisty country back roads in the rain and the snow. And I saw a figure that said the Google cars can only drive on about 1% of the roads in the mm. US currently. Um, obviously, that's going to increase, but it's hard to introduce a driverless car that almost works and then incrementally improve it over time in future updates and models. It has to work perfectly um, out of the driveway otherwise people are just not going to accept them but i think the real problem though is even if a self-driving car was 10 times better than a human the first time somebody is killed or seriously injured by one yeah the, the lawyers are going to start circling overhead uh, looking for millions of dollars from the people who made it uh, and the p- people won't listen anymore. You know, even if there's rigorous, overwhelming scientific evidence that they're much safer, um, mm-hmm. they're just not going to uh, accept it. So um, I think we'll see more driver assists on cars that help the driver spot dangerous situations and maybe automatically swerve to avoid them or apply the brakes, that kind of thing. But I doubt that we're going to see true driverless cars until there's some serious breakthroughs in better AI, and indeed better people. Yeah, I think James hits the nail on the head. When, you know, it was funny. When I was a kid, I used to think uh, that the cruise control on my on my parents' car was like an autopilot. And I was so disappointed when I eventually found out it didn't really do that. Um, but I, I can definitely see, as James said, more driver assist technology appearing. And we've already got a lot of that sort of widespread. But it would not surprise me at all to have a a mode that could be engaged when on the highway, for example, that could override if you're about to swerve into a lane or merge into another car or something like that. Um, and, you know, especially uh, there was a thing the other week from, um, I think, Daimler, uh, Daimler uh, in introducing an autonomous truck, essentially. And, and Jason made a great point about people driving long hours not really being optimized for people. And that seems like a great opportunity because, you know, those guys draw, drive incredibly long hours. Um, and having, you know, avoiding accidents involving, you know, semi-tractor trailers or whatever is a big deal. So I I think you guys are all right that, like, this is sort of something that's gradually happening over time and that fully autonomous cars are still quite a ways off. But I think we only see the best foot forward right now where Google talks about how great their cars are and, you know, it doesn't talk about the little details like, oh, yeah, it only works on on the roads near Palo Alto or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm optimistic that that there's more safety enhancements to be made, but I think it's a while before we go fully autonomous. Thank you all for that topic, Susie. What do you have for us today? 
Facebook just today announced a new feature for content creators. It's called Instant Articles, and it wants publishers to, instead of just publishing on your site and you know linking that to Facebook, which is kind of what we all do, um, they want you to create fast, interactive articles directly in Facebook. And this feature has some kind of whiz-bang um, elements like interactive maps. You can have audio captions. And you can even turn on inline comments, which means commenters will be able to pick apart your work sentence by sentence. But anyway, Ooh. I was wondering, yeah, since uh, since a lot of us here uh, do create content for the internet, I'm just wondering your opinion on this. Do you think Facebook is trying to back its way into being a media company? I mean, I think Facebook is already a media company. I think the difference is that they're not yet um – uh, you know they're not yet focusing on editorial content, and, and I think it's good that they're getting editorial partners to do that. I think that's a, I think that's a nice, uh, a nice thing. The, the, it's a publishing platform. I mean, it's really interesting because on, on one level, this is really just about sort of Facebook saying, "Can we take our users and make your content look better on our platform?" And uh, you know, I, I, it's an interesting experiment. Uh, Facebook's so big that publishers will probably, uh, publishers already put like meta tags and stuff in every single page on their site, hidden away, and normal users never see them that's full of metadata for Facebook because they want to be properly linked with images and stuff like that on Facebook. So this takes us to another level. There are people on Facebook. They share articles. Um, this It remains to be seen, but I'm, I'm intrigued by it only because it seems like Facebook uh, is not acting like they're the ones who are going to do the content. They're, they, you know, Yeah, Facebook wants their users and they want their money and they want their uh, the, the tracking data of everybody. But uh, in the end... The publishers are basically being given a platform to choose. Some of the stuff is dumb, like tilt your phone to pan across an image. It's like that's whatever. That's dumb. But, um, but you know, if it makes people more likely to read an article on Facebook because it loads immediately instead of having to go out and load a web browser page, that's actually kind of cool. And that is to the benefit of the publishers. So we'll have to see how it is. I, I'm, I'm not one of those people who has a blistering, you know, hate for Facebook. Like, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in how this goes because Facebook Facebook is so powerful and because they seem to have tried to give publishers some interesting tools to uh, to publish to their uh, to their format. Well, I, I was glad that um, when I was looking around at what the tech news was today, I thought, I'm sure somebody's going to bring up this instant article, so I better read about it and look at <laughs> what they're doing. And, and I had a look at their um, uh, some of their example ones, and it, it looked interesting. It reminded me a bit like uh, Glide, which is what's used for the Loop magazine and other things. Um, but, you know, I'm no media expert, unlike my esteemed panelists, uh, so I'm not as qualified to speak on the question, really. But while I can see the benefit of this to the readers of having a nice media-rich presentation and to Facebook such that people never leave the app and they get all the tracking information, and I think there was a thing about if you didn't have your own advertising or something, you could use their advertising platform as well. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I, I'm not 100% sure what the benefit of it is to the content providers. I mean, at the moment, it seems like a good deal. And, you know, you get your content in front of possibly more people with nice formatting with your own advertising. But once it's become firmly established, what's to stop Facebook from altering the deal any further? And, you know, oh, maybe we'll have 5% of your advertising revenue for hosting this and, you know... Maybe we don't want that article and so on. I, I'm I'm just skeptical of having another layer between uh, the 
the readers and uh, the content providers. Yeah, like like James, I'm pretty skeptical of this. I, I see what's good for Facebook. I don't feel like the uh, the approve the uh, content providers have as as good a deal there. Um, and I, you know, what I'm really interested in though is I want to know if Facebook can leverage its Oculus Rift virtual reality to make our content really pop. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, and as not a big Facebook user, uh, this doesn't really hold any attraction for me whatsoever. I think you're right that it totally puts another layer there. And I don't know, it just, it strikes me as something that I'm very suspicious of. All right, Facebook, what are you up to? But mm. the web, you know, the web has been around for a long time. I think it's hard to replace that easily by, you know, flashy whiz bang technology. Yeah, thanks. I agree with a lot of that. Um, they've got some good launch partners lined up. The New York Times is a site you know that I actually go to and read the news there. But some of these other ones like National Geographic and BuzzFeed and The Guardian, a lot of their content I only read when it's shared over On social. Facebook, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean a lot of it or I come Twitter, I come yeah. in through Twitter. Yeah. So if they're going to be on Facebook, I mean maybe a lot of times the peop- the stuff that my friends share on Facebook is real clickbaity. Like you'll never believe this, and I just <laughs> I can't click on that. So if this is going to actually present some content in a way where i can like see what it is um and decide if I, you know it's worth reading then th- th- that might be good so yeah i mean it, it was just announced today so it'll be a good thing to to watch but yeah thanks for your opinions on that we just have time for a bonus topic uh mother's day was uh just this past weekend and i'm curious what did all of you do for mother's day james well, absolutely nothing on the sunday that just went past as mother's day in the uk was nearly two months ago what um however My mother refuses to celebrate Mother's Day and considers it to be a completely made-up holiday. So Mm. usually, for no reason whatsoever, I will go over and visit her during the day and take a bunch of nice flowers, completely unrelated to it being Mother's (laughs) Day. Very nice. Very nice. I think think Mother's Day in the UK also has an extra U in there somewhere. No Mm -hmm. one really knows why. Like like James, I I went and visited my mother. I brought her some flowers and some chocolate, and uh, we had a nice dinner, and we had cake, which was actually a belated birthday cake for me. (laughs) Ha ha! Way to take over Mother's Day. Boo. Nice. Mother's Day was my son's half birthday, so we didn't have any cake, but we did a little family trip down to Monterey. We went to the aquarium. We went to the beach. Um, I had a fancy Bloody Mary at a fancy bar at Pebble Beach, which was fun and fancy. I only had to threaten my three-year-old twice um, so we could stay there. It was very nice. That's good. That's good. And I, we had a we had a nice uh, a nice day. My wife and I made uh, made a little brunch for the for brunch for the family, and then uh, I cooked some dinner. And uh, it's also my mother's birthday, Mother's Day weekend, <laughs> generally. Yeah. So this is why I'm in Arizona right now, is I'm visiting my mom now. It's a belated Mother's Day and birthday kind of thing. So that that that's the that's the reason why I sound slightly different. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, anyway, we are out of time. Thank you for sharing, uh, James Thompson. It's a pleasure to have you back on Clockwise. A pleasure to be on. And Susie Oaks, thank you so much for being here. Always a privilege. And Dan, we we made it another episode. (laughs) Shoo! Good to know. And thanks everybody out there for listening to Clockwise. As always, we remind you, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. See you next week. Bye. Bye.